Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and this is the third and final part of my recent conversation with authors Millie Taylor and Adam Rush regarding their captivating new book, which is titled Musical Theater Histories Expanding the Narrative. As you will hear, in this book, Millie and Adam have uncovered new, alternative ways of relating the history of the musical. Instead of just one way of telling that story, they've identified multiple thematic histories of the musical theater in the U.S., the U.K., and around the world. If you missed the first two episodes, you may want to catch up with those before listening to this one. As always, Broadway Nation is made possible in part through the generous support of our patron club members— If you would like to help support the creation of this podcast, I'll have information at the end of the episode about how you, too, can become a patron. Here we go. A musical I knew nothing about except for the title, possibly, which I want to hear more about, is Expresso Bongo. Tell us about that. This was a hit in its day. It was, and there is an absolutely awful film of it. So I've only seen the film version, which is completely saccharine. But again, what you have is English characters, an English pop star, and an American investor, a female American investor. Her investment comes with strings, and this young male bongo player wants to get on, and so he takes her investment. This is in the late 50s or the 1960s? Uh, Late 50s. He's got the vim and vigor, he's got the pace. He's got the slinky figure, he's got the face. He's got the message for them, burns up the place. He's got something for the public, something special for the public. And an extra special something for me. And me, and me, and me, and me, and me, and not forgetting me. Me, because he's really such a talented boy. Me, because he's just the type my readers enjoy. Me, because he'll liven up my charity balls. And me, because he's gonna pack them in on the halls. It's part of a wave. It's about the same time as the angry young men in Britain. I don't know whether you know that reference to the sort of much more working class representations. And it's at about the same time. And so our hero is very much a working class young man, but he's not a very likable young man. He rips people off. It's the sort of the Pal Joey idea in the story. And that representation of working class male macho antihero. Therefore, I think it's really interesting because it's part of a little batch at about that time through into the 1960s, where what we were seeing was a completely different kind of representation of urban culture and working class male characters. Me, because he represents the spirit of youth. Me, because he's frankly so divinely uncouth. Me, because my readership went up with a wham. And me, because he's money, money, money for ham. He's got the vim and vigor, he's got the face. He's got the stinky figure, he's got the face. He's got the message for a 
something for the public, something special for the public, and an extra special something for me. He's got something for the public, something special for the public, and an extra special something for me. So two more chapters. Chapter seven is the world was wide enough from colonial to corporate culture. Here is where you really delve into what we think of as a late 20th century phenomenon, which is the globalization of the Broadway musical. But what you actually show us is that this is, again, nothing new. There were aspects of this from the very beginning. Yes. So, you know, the whole history of colonialism, and it sort of came into the censorship chapter as well, actually, because, of course, the whole history of colonialism, people go and live in another country, they take their art with them. And if they're the people in charge, then they impose their art on the other culture. If, as the British Empire did, it had outposts all over the world, then tours start to move to those locations because the people who are in those locations for often years and years want to see things from home. And so there's a real sense of the importance of home. When you start reading these histories of the colonial theatre, it is about having something from home and feeling connected with your home culture. But of course, that has an impact on the other culture where you've arrived. And you can never get rid of that impact. So there's always going to be the two cultures in the future in conversation with each other, even after the end of colonialism and the departure of, in the case I'm talking about, of the British but it's the same in the Netherlands with their former colonies. You can't get rid of the fact that there are theatre buildings, theatre spaces, styles of music, styles of performance that arrived with the British. And alongside that, there is a touring circuit. So this happened many, many years ago and paved the way for early 20th century touring. And when we were talking about integration, we talked about the European operetta touring to America Well, it did, but it also toured to Australia and and elsewhere. What you have is a circuit and a history and a practice that was already established. What happened in the late 20th century or 1970s and 80s was that the circumstances around that changed. And so there were some different conditions emerged to do with the ability to move money, for example, ease of communication, ease of travel. So they all facilitated a much greater proliferation of global touring. And you reference this, as many people have, to sort of the Mac musical or the McDonald's effect on this global musical. Much of it, I would say, pioneered by Cameron McIntosh coming from the UK, partly from a UK advertising agency, a marketing group that really figured out how to turn at least these musicals. And then everybody else started to pick up on that into this kind of global commodity the way that Starbucks is. What do you think the effect of that has been? Is that all negative, all positive? Of course, nothing is. So how do we look at that? I think that's the debate, isn't it? And that's the debate we try to bring out. By coincidence, I saw the Dutch version of Les Miserables last weekend, the latest Cameron Mackintosh version, with some Dutch producers, De Graaf and Cornelissen, talking to people involved They speak, as many performers have spoken, of the fact that the team descends and there is a way one has to perform, you know, must move. This is the way it's presented. From an audience point of view, it looked beautiful. You know, it looked very professional, very beautiful. 
I think there are consequences for that. Now, clearly, from Cameron McIntosh's perspective and the producers and the directors and so on, what they're arguing is that the result of their process is that you get excellent quality. And therefore, it's democratic in allowing everybody to see the best version of Les Miserables or whatever show it happens to be. On the ground, there are some very mixed feelings. But then you take another thought, which is the consequence on the ground of the fact that there is a successful musical, there are musical directors, performers, musicians, there are creatives who are all working in that show who are all becoming much more professional and capable of creating musical theatre. And there is, therefore, in many countries around the world, the start of new musicals being created that, in the same way as post-colonialism, allows the musical to exist alongside other forms from that culture. Then new forms emerge in that place. I think that is one of the stories that is maybe untold other than in your book, that places like South Korea started off being dominated, I guess, by these foreign producers coming in to recreate their musicals there, but using the local talent, as you just said. And now those cities, those regions are creating their own musicals, creating new musicals, because they now have the talent and the know-how to do that. Yes, Yeah, it is the similar story to that idea of the post-colonial, that what happens is you can't ever not know what you've learnt, but that sits alongside what you already have and what your culture wants. So you start telling your stories through a different format. Fascinating. I am also aware that when those moments arrive and you are in a show where you're being told, stand on this line, move forward two steps... It doesn't feel that you're being empowered. Again, it's a difficult story. So you're living in one of those cities now that was not a direct creator of the musical theater, but is now a center of the musical theater. What is your perspective on that? I don't actually live there. I'm in the UK. I have a part-time job there, and so I'm constantly traveling between, which is interesting in itself. And I'm learning the language because, of course, shows are in Dutch. The debates are being had I would say that creators are struggling to find their own voices and to find ways of making those voices commercial. I've probably seen a similar journey to some extent in the UK, but there are other writers who talk about it in other places as well, that that emergence of new voices is slow and hard, but also the systems aren't necessarily in place and the audiences aren't necessarily ready for the emergence of those voices. It's a slow process and one that takes some investment as well. And yet there have been a few hit homegrown Dutch musicals. Yes, yes. The biggest one, well, there is one that arrived on Broadway. Serrano came to Broadway and that was one produced by Stage Entertainment, written by Kuhn van Dyck, and it arrived on Broadway. And that's part of the story of the emergence of these big global musicals. And Tarzan, Disaster on Broadway, has been revised and rewritten. It's now touring, or I don't know whether it's still touring, but it had a new life in Europe. Didn't it play in Hamburg for years and years? Yes, for quite a long while. Not as long as Cats or Starlight Express, but it was a success there. And the big one 
one is Soldier of Orange, which I find quite a Dutch nostalgic story, a crowd pleaser. But it has this extraordinary way of evoking nostalgia by being performed in the hangar of a disused airbase that the Germans took over during the war. And it's a wartime story. And it then later became the place where dignitaries would arrive in the Netherlands on planes. And it's now a theatre hangar whose back dock doors open at one point to reveal the Queen arriving back from the UK at the end of the war and descending the steps from a real aeroplane. So it's an extraordinary thing. It's not a modern story. It's not about contemporary Dutch life. But it is a story of Dutch life that is managing to... Well, it's been playing for more than 10 years. Waarom heb ik altijd gevoeld of mijn leven op drijfzand stond? Nu heb ik dus blijkbaar een doel waar ik een stap zet wordt het grond. Je kunt wel eeuwig van de toekomst blijven dromen. Maar met dromen komt die toekomst echt geen dag dichterbij. Morgen is vandaag en als ik nu de sprong niet waag, dan blijft het een illusie. Leef het avontuur, leef het als je laatste uur en zoek je plek in het licht. Wat de dag van morgen brengt, is al lang niet meer de vraag. Morgen is vandaag. In relating to the last chapter, it's a musical about what it means to be Dutch, I assume. Yes. Well, one of the things it means to be Dutch, because, of course, it's about the wartime. And, of course, it doesn't have any connection with the whole Dutch colonial history, which is another story about Dutch life that is not really being told yet. People are trying to tell those stories, but they're not emerging. One of the things you bring up in the book elsewhere, I believe, is that it's often, I think, easier for us to see our current issues reflected in a story about the past than it is in a story about the present day. Yes. Why is that? I think it's always easier not to see your own faults played out too closely in front of you. I think we would react very badly if our faults were played out too overtly. And it's one of the ways that musical theatre has always been engaging with contemporary history, using comedy, using alternative situations, using song, obviously. You know, if you think about cabaret, um, you tell stories through similar situations that allow the politics to be revealed. And it's very hard to capture the present moment, number one, for some reasons we just talked about. Uh, I think sometimes people criticize musicals because so many of them are set in the past, but they don't understand that they're really about the time that they're being produced and if they're really great musicals, they're about whatever time they're being produced. Yes, yes. Go away. Broadway Nation will be back right after this quick break.
Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make every day delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com slash BN50, as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. Final chapter is called Journey to the Past from Revival to Revisal. This is a really interesting chapter because, of course, so many shows in the past 30 years or so, or I guess more now, beginning especially in the 70s, revivals started to take on a new impetus, I guess, or done much more frequently than they had done before. There have always been revivals. Certainly, you go back to Gilbert and Sullivan, and they were among the first to just replicate the same show over decades and decades. The doily cart method of this is when you do this, and this is when you stand, and this is when your arm goes up was codified and laid down for 50 years at least before people started breaking that apart. So revivals have always been with us. Why is this a topic that you not only chose, but chose to make the final chapter of your book? So this chapter kind of sticks out, well, firstly, for that obvious reason, that this chapter is about what happens when time moves on and the world moves on. But really what it does is it underpins two of the central arguments that hold together the whole book. Firstly, around that idea of shifting cultural context. You know, Cabaret, we just mentioned in relation to the last chapter, but the way in which Cabaret has continued to be revived each decade or so, and yet written into Cabaret, this music, of course, that's set in 1930s Germany, but was written and first performed in the 60s America. We, of course, tell the well-known tale there that that show is actually or could be read as a metaphor for the civil rights movement and similar struggles in the 60s counterculture movement. But every time that show reappears on either side of the Atlantic and beyond, it seems to speak to a new culture and new politics seem to arise. So one of the examples we use is, of course, in the 90s and kind of towards the end of the AIDS crisis and how perhaps, you know, homophobia it could be one example of the 90s version of the kind of stigma or kind of persecution, I guess. 
Perhaps then the 90s revivals of cabaret reflect instead homophobia as the kind of persecuted type of identity, whereas we see, of course, different types of identity persecuted during the 30s or the 60s. And yet cabaret seems to be this vehicle that still works and comes about and is able to be manipulated or altered, maybe even very slightly. You know, the text of cabaret hasn't been rewritten hundreds of times. The lyrics are rarely changed. But the world changes and therefore certain production choices often are used to reflect that. And the second point really that the book does a lot of, of course, or tries to kind of explore those interactions is that transatlantic history. And for me, some of the most interesting stories in that chapter are about where the musicals that are being revived do not stem from the country in which they're being formed. So my example would be the National Theatre in the 90s. In the 90s in Britain, it's this kind of resurgence, this cool Britannia era where British culture is very much celebrating what it means to be British. The and Jack is plastered on Jerry Halliwell from the Spice Girls' dress. And yet at the National Theatre, a publicly funded venue, it's all Roger and Hammerstein and Sondheim. And so there's this contradiction that's rooted within that time period that what's being revived is not Oliver, for instance, or a, a more classic Golden Age British musical, but actually a set of American texts. And so not only are we telling stories of revivals living and working in new cultures and new time periods, but by exploring that transatlantic interaction, we're finding all sorts of unique stories about how shows are traveling the world to speak to different contexts, far different from where they started. To what extent does Oklahoma in the 90s speak to Britain? It's kind of very far removed from the types of other works that are being presented at that time. When I take you out tonight with me Honey's the way it's gonna be You will sit behind a team of snow white horses in the slickest gig you ever see Chicks and ducks and geese better scurry when I take you out in the surrey when I take you out in the surrey with a fringe on top and yet somehow it obviously sparked a chord or it would not have been the giant success that it was. So there's something about that story that people connected with. What I think is fascinating about those shows is that they were very important in America as well. I think because of the lack of reverence that we talked about earlier with The Wizard of Oz, directors like Trevor Nunn were able to view those shows like they do Shakespeare, which is this is a text and we're going to put it on the stage. And up to that point in America, most of the time when you revived, especially a Rodgers and Hammerstein show, it was the idea that you were going to recreate it the way it was done originally. When those shows came to America, they opened the eyes. I think they changed the way production was done in the United States, especially on Broadway, but everywhere to the idea that, oh, the idea now is to reconceive these shows, not recreate them. And I think that had a major effect on American theater that maybe is not always understood. And with that show in particular, if we just take Oklahoma, jump forward 20 years and argue, you know, on Broadway until recently and now in London, we've got Daniel Fish's revival of Oklahoma, which is probably one of the most creative or alternative versions of a Golden Age musical that there's been. 
And I agree, you probably wouldn't have had that without the Trevor Nunn production. Absolutely. So it's clearly set some cogs into gear that's enabled all this kind of new creativity. But there, I think there is something there about the subsidised theatre as well. And that's one of the things in the UK that was a trigger for some of those things to be able to happen. Now I believe that there are a lot of interactions in the States between the regional theatres and Broadway in a way that is relatively recent and that mirrors what's happening here between the subsidized sector and the commercial theater. Absolutely. You mentioned in the book that the out-of-town system was completely broke down, basically, and then had to be reestablished using non-for-profit theaters. I'm very familiar with that because for 18 years, I ran the Fifth Avenue Theater in Seattle, where we did the world premieres of Hairspray and Memphis and Disney's Aladdin. I was very much part of that system Mm -hmm. that, as you say, started, I think you mentioned this in the book too, Big River was one of the first of those shows that started in La Jolla and came to Broadway through this new out-of-town system. But it is entirely dependent on nonprofit theater companies, as we call them here in America, not subsidized by the government so much, but subsidized by contributions. You couldn't do it without that way. The economics of it don't work anymore to do it entirely in a commercial way. It's too expensive to take the risks, isn't it? It is. And yet at the same time, I don't know that the nonprofit theater companies or the subsidized ones in the UK are, it's a complicated thing. I think it has been very positive for both sides, but I'm not sure it's equitable for both sides. Yes, that's probably true. I suppose if you think of yourself as an audience member, though, you've won. Absolutely. Anything else about this final chapter in terms of revivals and revisals that we don't want to pass over? I would just say the only other element that we've not talked about is the trends that seem to occur in relation to revivals. So certainly the idea of museum piece revivals we do address and how some shows quite early on in their history became kind of up for grabs for totally reinvention and some have kind of stayed in their original production for much longer. A chorus line springs to mind, for instance, has many, many productions of a chorus line still keep to Michael Bennett's original. But also the way in which theatre making in musical theatre terms has potentially become more creative through revivals. My example is sort of act musicianship. There have, of course, been lots of different musicals, original musicals, which do include the performers also playing the instruments. But that concept has been much more widely explored with revivals and often in Britain, and there's scores that were written for 30 players and stripped back to 10 players, maybe maximum. And lots of those, as we describe in the book, were developed at the Watermill Theatre in Newbury, which is this tiny theatre out in the middle of nowhere, but yet has become this kind of landmark through the work of John Doyle and Sarah Travis to creating new ways of seeing shows. And there are lots more other examples that we address in the book, how opera houses have been instrumental in how musicals have been revived and so on. So not only are we seeing shows re-envisioned in new contexts and across countries, we're also seeing the aesthetics of musical theatre changing through revivals or maybe taking elements that maybe aren't as widely used in original shows when they're first performed, but yet become central to when they're revived. I think the reason this is the last chapter is because of that sense of musical theatre always having a life. So we've talked a bit in previous chapters about creativity and the emergence of creativity and so on. But actually that musicals, even those that we might consider to be problematic today, they can always be reinvented. And so there's that sense that there is now this incredible history and stock of musicals that can be completely re-envisaged and can speak 
anew to generations. And so that seemed like an appropriate way to end the book was with that sense of everything that we've talked about all being encompassed in the fact that these can all keep moving forward and moving forward and being re-seen in different ways. I think that's very apt. Someday Dear Evan Hansen will be a revival of an old show or Come From Away will be seen as an old show in need of reviving and perhaps even revising. It will be fascinating to see how that works. Mm. And especially at this moment when so many shows from Showboat being the most prominent one is now coming into public domain. So it's really up for grabs. You can do anything you want to Showboat now. And it will be fascinating to see. Nobody that I know of has taken that on yet. But over the next 20 years, we'll see much of the golden age come into public domain and, like Shakespeare, be then open for any kind of interpretation that you want to put on it, any kind of rewriting, anything you want to layer over the top of it. Who knows what we're going to be watching in the next 20 years? (laughs) Well, I'll be interested to see the book you write then. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Millie Taylor and Adam Rush. It's been delightful to have you as guest on Broadway Nation to talk about your new book, Musical Theatre Histories, Expanding the Narrative. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, David. My pleasure. Now here's the information about how you too can become a patron of Broadway Nation. A donation of just $7 a month will not only keep Broadway Nation rolling along, it will also provide you with exclusive access to the complete unedited versions of many of the interviews that you hear on this podcast. And all patrons will receive special shout-outs and acknowledgments of your vital support for Broadway Nation. To join, simply go to broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech That's broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech or click the link in the show notes to this episode. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.